At the beginning, I told you about the seven relay coaches as a simile used for the seven stages of purification, which take us from where we're at now to complete liberation. To recapitulate, the first one, the purification of virtue. which entails, amongst other things, the calming and guarding of the senses and learning the wholesomeness of reaction to feelings, sensations and emotions. The next one is the purification of mind, which entails the substitution of the unwholesome with the wholesome in the thought process and arousing the wholesome. The next one is the purification of view, in the, um, I'll go back to the mind for a moment, which also includes the purification of our emotions that we have the, um, use the four sublime emotions in substitution and preference to all others the third one the purification of view brings us to our first steps of insight of not seeing us ourselves anymore as a whole lump but at least as mind and body mind being in charge body following it um, brings us into analysis of ourselves which has many different ways of using insight meditation which we have discussed then comes the purification of doubt where we start investigating the three characteristics of impermanence and dukkha and corelessness and our doubt eventually becomes less and less seeing that there is really only that we then come to the purification of knowing what is the past and what is not the past by having our own personal experiences which again are within the realm of those three characteristics so that we lose our clinging somewhat and then comes the first step of the transcendental experience the knowledge and vision of things as they really are the purification of our knowledge and vision where we can see quite clearly that what we have believed until now isn't really exactly that way while it is that way in relativity it can never be that way in an absolute understanding and as we purify our knowledge and vision we have understanding of our experiences experiences are always impermanent 
the experiences are never totally satisfying and they don't have a core substance they have never been anything else from the beginning of our lifetimes but we're beginning to understand them which is the knowledge together with the vision and as we purify that and get it more and more into our being our understanding of the Dhamma consciousness arises that it becomes more and more our own so now we come then to the purification of insight which is disenchantment and dispassion the purification of insight which shows us that there's nothing really there that we should go for search for grasp it now these are the seven relay coaches which we need to use seven steps to get to the complete freedom complete liberation they are our vehicles of course I've only now very briefly repeated them but what you have heard during the course of these days was the details of each step could together with instructions of the meditative process in both directions calm and insight now you realize I'm sure that this recapitulation of the seven steps is only very superficial there is this the detailed explanation has already been given however the whole discourse called the Rattavinita Sutta the seven relay coaches would not be complete if I were not to give you the last step how to get there and what it entails it is called complete extinction through non-grasping and I think most people who hear that immediately get the idea of annihilation I don't want to be extinguished but it isn't that isn't the meaning the complete extinction is the extinction of all dukkha the extinction of all illusion the extinction of all fetters we have a very detailed explanation of the fetters which I will give you in a moment we also have a detailed explanation by the Buddha of the several steps that comprise that total extinction through non-grasping 
Now obviously, those seven relay coaches, which were purification steps, had to have inherent in them a lessening of our clinging and grasping. The lessening of trying to get something, the grasping, and the lessening of hanging on to what we've already got. So coming to this last step, we have now an understanding at this point that everything that we have known so far is built up of conditions over which we have absolutely no jurisdiction. In other words, we are constantly victims. And unless we see that one day, we won't have enough push inside to get out. We are a victim of the conditions which are prevailing over which we cannot exercise any power. The conditions in which of ourselves are the conditions of this body which is built up through several layers of craving, the conditions of our senses which are conditioned because of the body. Everything we own is made it's not it doesn't have any underlying base which exists in itself now if you examine yourself in that manner you can find that there's nothing that exists in itself it's all depend upon something else the senses are depend upon the body our reactions are depend on the senses the Buddha described that in depend origination which is another discourse and which contains also the same truth seen from a little different angle all of it is based as he calls it on ignorance avijja which does not mean that we don't know anything it means strictly that we are ignoring our experiences we are ignoring that which is staring us in the face because we don't want to know about it that's why we have ignorance we are ignoring the four noble truths of which the third one is total liberation we are ignoring our own personal experience of the three characteristics so therefore build up on that all other conditions arise and having come to this point in our practice we see now that we are no longer satisfied with all this conditioned existence that this body and mind is the mind which reacts to the sense contacts, the mind which tries to free itself and has to depend upon concentration. And we're tired of having to be 
a victim of all the conditions which exist around us which not necessarily always unpleasant but certainly with not within our reach to do anything about them and so we come to the point of wanting to experience the unconditioned that which doesn't have anything underlying it which exists in itself for itself where there is nothing built up on something else where we are not no longer a victim of circumstance no longer a victim of sense contact no longer a victim of the always inherent danger that something may go wrong and no longer in a situation where everything constantly moves including ourselves so we want to experience the unconditioned naturally we don't know what the unconditioned is because we've never experienced it we only know the conditioned we know the existence as it is this we know if we have paid attention to ourselves have had sufficient meditative practice we know that this is not satisfactory there must be something else we have been going along on this path constantly because there must be something else and as we reach that something else we are again not satisfied next step next step which is exactly true it isn't satisfying completely it's always a little more satisfying but never totally so now wanting to experience the unconditioned all we know is that our mind when it's moving cannot possibly experience anything that's unconditioned because it is always reacting to the thought process or to the concentration process if there's calm even in the highest state of absorption it is reacting to the concentration we're constantly reacting to something now of course this is subtle and fine to react to concentration in the very uh, highest absorption but it's still a reaction and it's still dependent upon something so we're still a victim of our own ability to do something and we want to have that which is totally free we have also by this time understood that all mind processes no matter how subtle are still irritating because they're moving now they don't move like our thought processes from one thought to the next in the more concentrated subtle uh, states but the mind is just as much a victim of the constant vibration of particle coming together and falling apart than anything else it's exactly the same so having this experience we want that which doesn't move which doesn't have any irritation in it and now at this stage the mind must be able to be totally one pointed so it can use that ability 
to come to a absolutely still, non-moving state momentarily where there is no input and no output. This is only a moment. This moment is then used for a peculiar and unique experience which we need to exercise deliberately. None of this falls over us like a mantle of grace. It's a deliberate attempt at freeing ourselves from the net of delusion. Now obviously we must have come to some freedom already, otherwise we can't take the last step. But having come here, there is a step to be taken. And this is very nicely explained in a simile. In the first instance, the Buddha always compared the um, samsara, the wheel of birth and death, and nibbana, with being on two opposite shores of a river. And he said that most people run back and forth on the near shore, constantly complaining about the discomfort they are experiencing the lack of happiness they're having, thinking that it must be much nicer on the other side, but much too afraid to plunge into the stream and get across. They're dithering around on this shore. He said that the Dhamma, the teaching, is the raft which can take us across this river. The river which has many rapids, which is the the difficulty of crossing an unknown area, but the raft is quite strong. So we sit on this raft and get across. However, there is a much more pertinent simile how to get across. The raft gives one the idea of sitting on top of it and paddling across, and which is our pathway. The raft denotes all the steps which I have just reiterated. But the actual getting across to the other side has a very uh, much um, more impressive simile. It's um, compared to a tree which grows on this shore on which we attach, to which we attach a rope. And then we catch hold of that rope. And because of the momentum of our practice, we are able to swing across to the other shore, let go of the rope and fall down on the other side, being of course at first unsteady. The tree denotes corporality, this 
body. The rope mentality, this mind. The swinging across the practice which has to have enough power behind it to be able to really get across that river because it's quite wide and treacherous and letting go on the other side and falling down on the other side is giving up the total individuality the me giving it up completely letting go entirely that's why it's extinction without grasping no longer hanging on as we're doing now obviously on the other side we first are very unsteady we soon find our feet now the moment of falling down on the other side is called the past moment and finding one's feet and standing steady is the foot moment which follows immediately the past moment is the moment of letting go of being willing to completely lose any self-identity it's not just a game of swinging across it's only a simile we can describe it in another form we're willing to let go of this conditioned existence that we have which we have realized to be unsatisfactory never fu- completely fulfilling and return to the matrix of existence to the underlying ground which is all pervading in which we have taken the mistaken notion that because there is a body and a mind that we are separate from it sometimes i like to compare it with an ocean in which separate bubbles are arising and one bubble yells to the next bubble look at me i'm much bigger than you i can jump much higher i'm very small i'm ugly i'm separate from you but in reality it takes a millisecond and the bubble is back in the ocean that millisecond is our life and if we're willing to let this individuality that individual bubble drown then it doesn't have to reappear as an individual but in order not to reappear we have to be sick and tired of having this conditioned existence which constantly provides difficulties which we overcome to the best of our ability but a new one arises the difficulty is not only in the physical existence which takes an awful lot of taking care and looking after and um, which becomes worse and worse as age approaches but it's particularly in our mental existence and many many people fall by the wayside their mental existence is no longer healthy even if it's healthy 
it isn't satisfying. So the willingness to let go comes from our practice, of course. Now, obviously, in the course in the course of a few days such as this, the practice cannot reach to there. Only the information. The information can, and it is important just as the Buddha has done in all his discourses to know the whole of the road map so that at least one knows what the destination is called so that if one does want to look it up where one is going one has some sort of pointers this letting go on the other's shore is this willingness not to have individuality not to be me but to just return to one's source there is another story which is quite significant possibly for our whole pathway a story of Sujata a Sujata was a woman at the Buddhist time who badly wanted a child and had been unable to conceive and in the neighborhood where she lived there was a tree which supposedly harbored a deva a higher being which if one begged this deva would be in a position to provide one with the conception of a baby obviously this is superstition but it's no worse than many other superstitions that we harbor so Sujata so the story goes went to that tree and begged the tree deva to please provide her with a baby and lo and behold nine months later she had a baby so she had promised the tree deva that she would give a great offering to this tree deva if a baby was to appear but having had the baby she hadn't got around to that yet so one day her maid went past that tree and saw what she thought was the tree deva sitting underneath the tree in reality it was the Buddha who was sitting there before he became the Buddha it was the Bodhi tree and what's today Bodhgaya and he had decided that he was going to sit under this tree and meditate until he found enlightenment even if it took so long that his flesh would rot from his bones slightly longer than 45 minutes <laughs> so he was sitting there deciding to practice now this maid of course being somewhat uh, being also in this um, imbued with the superstition thought the tree deva had come down so she prostrated and said that her mistress didn't hadn't forgotten about this great offering and please he should stay there not go away because her mistress would certainly come with the offering well he had no intention of going away anyway 
so he sat there. So the maid ran home, told the mistress about it, told Sujata about it, and it appears that Sujata was a very rich woman uh, owning a dairy farm. She um, decided what she was going to do was she was going to milk a hundred cows and give the milk of those hundred cows to, to fifty cows to drink. Then she would milk the fifty cows, give the milk to twenty cows. Then she'd milk twenty cows and give the milk to one cow. And then when that cow was milked, pure cream would come out. So she did that. And then she cooked rice in that cream. And then she put that food into a golden bowl. And she went to the tree to offer this to the tree deva. And she offered this golden bowl with the milk rice to the Buddha, to the Bodhisattva, and asked him to accept this as an offering. To this day, in Sri Lanka, on any occasion when there's anything to celebrate, monks and nuns get kiri bat, kiri is milk and bat is rice. They get milk rice. And it's um, cooked very, um, like a very um, solid food. So she gave him also the, would he please accept also the golden bowl. And he said he would. And then he had the food, ate the food, and then he said, he would throw that golden bowl in the river behind him. If it would swim downstream with the current, he wouldn't get enlightened. But if that golden bowl would swim upstream against the current, then he would get enlightened. Well, obviously it must have swum upstream. But the meaning of the story is symbolic and has significance for our own lives. Whether golden bulls can swim upstream or downstream is, I don't know. But what we're thinking of and what we're looking at is going along with the current downstream. We're going along with the opinions and the habits of others. The world around us impresses us. We are very impressionable. So we do what others do. But we also go along with our own instincts and impulses which obviously are the same as everybody else's and so it's much easier to go downstream with the crowd because we're going with the current but where do we end up? in the mud flats at the bottom of the river with everybody else if we start going upstream everybody else is going to call to us and say, hey, what are you doing? You're going in the wrong direction. Come with us. It's much easier. And we're all going the same direction. Why do you have to be different? What are you doing? It's much more difficult to paddle against the current. Against the current of instinct and impulse. Against the current of public opinion. Against that which is habitual. It takes much more strength and energy. That's why energy is one of the second factors of enlightenment. But if we do make it, we come back, we arrive at the source. 
The source of the river is the source of our being. The source where the water is totally pure. Where it has originated. So paddling upstream, certainly, it's not quite, not half as easy as going with the rest. But we do arrive at that point where everything is totally clear. This can be um, an explanation of how to use our pathway when the world around us is obviously doing everything differently from us and we are again and again tempted to go along with it. It's very tempting. It's much easier. But the easy things don't usually produce the big results. What could be easier than turning on a television set? Any kid from two years or not upward, or even less these days, can do it. Most grown-ups are still doing it. It doesn't mean that everything that they show is terrible. I don't mean that at all. But what it means is that effort to purify our mind, our views, our knowledge, our understanding is much more difficult than that. And naturally, there are only a few people that are paddling upstream. So naturally, all the rest of them are saying, they must be a little bit funny, at least, if not something worse than that. Some are more polite than others. If we have decided that the way of the crowd is not ours, but the way of purity is ours, then we will continue. Now having done, having come to this experience in our lives, where we are really for the first time completely willing and able to let go of this bothersome me, we have benefits right then and there. The past moment is the one of jumping, falling down on the other side. The foot moment is the one of steadying oneself on one's feet. That is the moment when we consider what have we just done. And the feeling which arises is one of having let go of an enormous burden. As if we have shed a heavy sack that we've been carrying on our shoulders. That sense of freedom is only momentary. The food moment doesn't last that long either. But we can also reconsider at that time what are we free from. This is a very important recapitulation 
which happens more or less automatically. We don't have to deliberate because we've done something very significant. We also deliberate what have I actually done. A person who has taken this first step in the Buddhist terminology is called a stream entrer. That person has entered the stream for total liberation but it's only the first step. That person loses the first three fetters. The first three fetters that are lost are that this person can never again think of him or herself in the same way that we have thought of ourselves before. We now know that we have a mistaken view but we keep forgetting. A screamer keeps forgetting. He has to deliberately replay that fruit moment over and over again in the mind. The past moment cannot be replayed. When it is replayed, it's the second past. But the fruit moment gets replayed if one remembers. Because it is still such a new um, and feeble experience, the feeling of not being me vanishes after the past moment only the knowledge remains. And because only the knowledge remains, which can be resurrected at any given moment, hate and greed are not even touched. The illusion has been broken through, but hate and greed have not been diminished yet. The things that have been removed is the belief in self there's no further that belief is not there the belief in rites and rituals and skeptical doubt skeptical doubt that this is the right path skeptical doubt in the Buddha's genius skeptical doubt in one's own ability all that's removed it is said that such a person can, can only have seven more lives to finish this is what it says in the book and also that such a person cannot break the five precepts which I will explain tonight the five precepts because of the belief the understanding that there is nobody that really needs to grasp and cling to anything however it is a very beginning um, a very um, not a, such an impressive step because the person keeps forgetting all the time the only thing that is really significant is the fact that teaching has been understood it's totally clear what the Buddha means with the delusion of self it's been totally understood and also the another benefit which is said to accrue from that is that one cannot be reborn below a human being. 
The most significant aspect of that is the fact that a person who has been become a stream mentor will be imbued with the urgency and energy to get on with it. Such a person would not stop practicing. How far they'll get, well, that's the second question. But they would not stop practicing because they have seen the benefit of this particular um, instance already. The continuation of the practice makes it possible then to take that jump again. To take that jump again should not be difficult, should it? Because one's done it already once. But what speaks against it is that the stream mentor constantly forgets about it. Constantly forgets that he really isn't there. And, or he or she. And thinks in the same way he used to think. Only when he gets to the point of looking a little more closely, having time, then all of a sudden it comes back. Well, what am I doing? This is not right. I know that there is no self. I've experienced it. And he comes back to it again and again. So it's not that easy to go to this, to have that seven, second pass moment because of the fact that the dream enterer does not have constant Dhamma consciousness. What I've already explained to you what that means. However, he eventually gets around to it and is willing again to completely let go of self and takes another jump. Now the second jump is already a little more experienced. So he can jump a little further. But these are only these are only symbol, symbolic. And jumping just a little further and having had a second experience of this, the impression of it is stronger. The mind is more has more of an imprint of it. And this time Hate and greed gets diminished. This one is called a once returner. Has to come back one time more to do it. Can be done all in one lifetime. Now even now only hate and greed is diminished. That should show us that if we haven't even got near that last step that Hate and greed is rampant in the world. And we should never again be surprised at our own hate and greed and everybody else's. This is natural. What we're trying to do is to become supernatural. Hate doesn't have to be violent hate. It's dislike, it's irritation, it's resistance, rejection, envy, jealousy, um, also very much based on fogginess, delusion, justification of all that. And greed doesn't have to be violent greed. The greatest greeds we have are three. They're called the three cravings. And one is the gratification of sensual desire in other words we'd like to have it nice 
And the other one is the craving for existence. We don't want to be annihilated. We want to be here. We're all very justifiable, isn't it? But certainly not helpful on the spiritual path of letting go of our more unfortunate reactions, to put it mildly. So those are the natural ways of being. The third one, by the way, is the craving for non-existence, which just means that I, the me, is getting upset and worried and fearful and would rather not be here, suicidal. It's the same me that wants to be eliminated, but it's not letting go of me illusion. So we don't usually have to deal with that particular one. Um, It's not that common as the one that says, I want to be here. So these are our two main directions in life. And since we can't always get the sensual gratification, and since not everybody is going to support support us and um, help our ego to be somebody, we're never going to be really satisfied. So our reactions are, of course, hate if it doesn't happen, and the greed of having more of a support system for ourselves. The support system is always supposed to be both emotional and material. So even on the second step, hate and greed is not eliminated. It's only a bit reduced. It's hard to say how much. One might say 50% reduced. That's only a viewpoint. It changes from hating things into being irritated. At that point, the person no longer voices that irritation because the person has become extremely aware of the inner workings and realizes that the irritation is due to one's own defilement and has nothing to do with what goes on out there. All of it out there is based on conditions. So a person who is a once-returner still feels irritation but will not voice it anymore because there's nothing to say it just is that person also keeps forgetting also does not have a complete feeling of no self although the feeling is a little stronger already and arises a little more often it still is not complete It arises more often so that the person can walk around without that self-consciousness. Now, our self-consciousness is what says, this is me. And this self-consciousness is constantly wanting something to make sure that me is really there. It really brings about every aberration of the mind that one can think of. We think our reactions are normal. Well, they're natural, but they're not normal. 
we are reacting constantly with hate and greed either one or the other and the less we have seen it the more we will do it now the once returner who's already halfway to being enlightened still has hate and greed still can't remember the feeling all the time the past moment is the action the fruit moment is the recognition of the feeling so the feeling has arisen in the fruit moment of no person there and yet even having done it twice it still doesn't remain these two steps are the kindergarten of enlightenment the next one is more difficult far more difficult and much greater purification needs to have taken place in order to take the next step in other words one jumps the third time same thing a little further but because that third step entails a complete destruction of hate and greed it is much more difficult to do it again the mind may want to the mind certainly wants to but the purity of mind is the one that will make it possible which means that the once returner needs to remember over and over again to bring up the feeling that there's nobody there because when there is this feeling of being no, nobody there there's impossible to have hate and greed who's going to have hate and greed if there's nobody there who could possibly have a problem if there's nobody there there is mind and body but there is no owner inside and this is the reason for the investigation into the five aggregates of five heaps where's the owner if there is no owner it is impossible to have the slightest problem there's impossible to have hate and greed it's impossible to become unhappy who is going to be unhappy if there's only mind and body and no ownership we can see like this let's say we're invited to a party now the hostess and the host they have to look after the food and the house and the arrangements and they must to make sure that everybody has enough to eat they also have to make sure that people don't burn cigarette holes in their carpet they also like to make sure that nobody runs off with the silverware they also like to make sure that everybody enjoys themselves that it tastes all right they like to make sure that the dishes get washed but if you're a guest at the party what do you care you don't own the place no ownership the minute there's no ownership there's no problem this is the whole difference between the ordinary untrained mind and the trained mind no ownership nothing to own and if we look at it from the standpoint of we're here such a short time and yet we are clinging and grasping this is mine this is me 
I've got to get it right. I'm going to organize it so that's going to be good for me. I'm going to get my life in order. I'm going to keep those people and get rid of the others. Such a short period of time. What's there to do? So now to take that third step, the one is called that that takes that is called a non-returner. That means these are technical terms, but I'll mention them to you. It's possible that you might read something where you find them, but also they are significant in so far that they explain something to us. We do need names for things. The mind is called Nama, the Nama. The non-returner, that means that that person never returns to the human realm again. Now, that's quite a step, isn't it? Has to finish the business in a higher realm. According to the Buddha's cosmology, there are 31 realms of existence. I've already mentioned it, that we are number five from the bottom. So, really nothing much to expect. But, we can do it. And not to misunderstand that we now have to go from 5 to 31, nothing like it. We can finish right here, in this realm. But a non-returner goes to a higher realm. Having done the meditative absorptions, he will go to one of the four highest realms. The meditative absorptions are the vehicle. The vehicle for what are called the Brahma realms. And these realms are very long-lasting and um, very potent and that's where the um, Buddha said where the idea of God comes from because Brahma means God realms because they are so long lasting and so potent that these beings get an idea that they are indefinite they are forever and that they can do anything but the Buddha said that realm also is impermanent However, a non-returner will probably stay there quite some time. This is conjecture, one doesn't know. But in this lifetime, a non-returner has lost hate and greed. So now we are rid of five fetters. The belief in self, the belief in rites and rituals, skeptical doubt, and hate and greed. Well, it's quite an achievement, but there are five more to be gotten rid of before one can be fully enlightened. However, the non-returner has now the experience as a fruit moment of great freedom because hate and greed is gone. And the non-returner remembers the feeling of non-self practically all the time. A very little lapse. That feeling which is a different feeling from the ordinary feeling. There's very little lapse of time when that is lost. The minute a non-returner loses that feeling, he immediately brings it back. Now the Arahant doesn't have to do that. The Arahant has that feeling, nothing else. But the non-returner, becoming aware of the loss of the feeling, brings it back. So obviously, having done it for the third time, the jumps a little further the um, person can stand easily more steadily and has the advantage of the fruit moment being more impressive 
because now it's already used to it. All three, as I've explained, will do a recapitulation of the defilements lost and of the defilements remaining. Now, as I said in the beginning, the first one has all its defilements intact. The second one has diminished them. Now, this one, the third one, knows hate and greed's gone. But he has other problems. <laughs> Namely, the non-returner is compared to that the self clings to the non-returner like the scent clings to a flower. So the, like a rose, if you have smell a rose, there's a scent clinging to that rose. That subtle, the self still clings to the non-returner. I can imagine, after having done all this work, there's still this scent of the self clinging to the non-returner. And because of that, there is still ignorance. This is what ignorance is called. There's still the ignorance because there's still a little bit of that delusion. There is a still conceit. Now, conceit is not what we usually mean conceit. It's not a conceited person. But that person is still conceiving of himself as a non-returner. Such a person, when asked or when pressed by his or her teacher, will conceive of him or herself as a non-returner. So that's conceit. But that doesn't mean that the person is conceited. But yet, all these are still fetters. Buddha calls them fetters. So the first thing is there's still that little bit of ignorance, there's this conceit. There is still restlessness. Because the person still hasn't finished. So the restlessness to be totally free. And because this person has already an inkling of what it means to be free, the restlessness to be totally free can be recognized. And then the thing that happens at this stage is that such a person knows they're not coming back to the human realm. That's for sure. But they're at this stage still contented or at least playing around with the idea of coming back in one of the higher realms. Now, they are divided into two parts. They're divided into Deva and Brahma realms. So these are called two of the fetters still. So these are the five fetters which are still clinging to the non-returner because there is still that little bit of self there. Now, when we have that as an understanding, I think it will help us to understand why the world acts and appears to us the way it is most of the time in a mess what else could it be if even a person that is just before full enlightenment still has those problems what could there be anything else with people who haven't even started the path yet and that includes everybody the presidents and the prime ministers and the, uh, um, the bishops and anyone who hasn't 
got this far will have those problems. Naturally, a non-returner, if he isn't... Now, this happens to non-returners. First of all, they may be quite old. It takes a while to get there. So they may be fairly old and not have the energy anymore to go further. That happens quite frequently. Or the wish for the rebirth in those higher realms, either Deva or Brahma, can be very strong and very difficult to uproot. And because it's such a subtle me feeling, that feeling is also difficult to uproot. Now comes the most difficult step to become fully enlightened. And it is again the same jump, it goes further, and this time there is nothing left, no me. The feeling is constant. There is never again can the me feeling arise. In other words, when such a person speaks, just speaking. When such a person walks, just walking. No more, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. The language remains the same. The Buddha talked about himself also as me and I, sometimes in the third person. He talked about himself as a Tathagata. The one gone such. Tata is such, Gata is gone. The one gone such. But very often also about, I did this and I'm doing that. The language cannot change because the language is based on the majority of people and not on that very small minority of people who lose their me. The person having done that, taking that step, is constantly without the inner feeling of a person there and has lost the last five fetters. Now, because there is nobody there, there's also nobody left to be reborn. This is when rebirth stops, which is a matter of argument and discussion amongst um, different factions in the Buddhist world and uh, hardly useful to argue about. Let's get there and find out for ourselves. But the way it is explained in the Pali Canon, which is the oldest of the Buddhist teaching, which is the Buddhist words as we know them, because nobody's left there. There's only mind and bodies, absolutely no person. There is no way of having a, a rebirth. All karma at that time is, of course, no longer operative. However, if it has been extremely strong karma, and there are certain things which are very, very strong, the resultants even can accrue to the Arahant. By example, Mahamogalana, who was the uh, left-hand disciple of the Buddha, fully enlightened, was murdered. And when the other monks asked the Buddha, why could such a pure, wonderful, holy person have such a destiny? And the Buddha said, Mahamogalana, in his past life, the one immediately passed, instigated the murder of his parents. Now this is one of the four um, karmic actions 
which will have retribution no matter how, whether one is enlightened the others are uh, wounding a Buddha killing an Arahant killing parents and putting a schism in the Sangha schism in the Sangha is long done so um, <laughs> so these are the, the four um, great um, uh, crimes and uh, if we can call it that which will have a retribution even for an arhat but otherwise karma stops because there's nobody there anymore who can have a resultant of karma that's the only moment when karma stops being operative until then we make karma with every decision with every thought some of that karma is neutral because if we decide we want to paint the house green or red it doesn't really matter we're going to get a green or a red house it's totally neutral but these are only material decisions otherwise we are making karma constantly because we are always thinking it's me that's going to do something the me is making the karma and that's why we need to be so careful because we can make pretty bad karma in the blink of an eyelid we've got to be really careful we've got to watch our wants and our resistances naturally as long as we have the me there will be difficulties but if we're on a path on a spiritual path and I'm saying a spiritual path whichever one you'd like to be on we've got to be careful because we are constantly in danger I have told you about this what I've just explained in order to give you a rounded um, explanation of the past not necessarily because it has become a practical consideration but a theoretical knowledge so the um, every step on the way leads in that direction and if one becomes resistant to the path one's becoming resistant to the feeling that the ego is getting a bit of a clap on the head it does constantly when one is on this path and if one's starting to resist the path that's exactly what the mind's doing it doesn't really like to see the ego smaller than it has been one has been quite satisfied with all the ups and downs it's still okay so why practice every time one has that resistance it's very helpful to inquire what's going on what's happening one other thing which is important on the path which is not really um, relevant to what I've been saying but I think it's an important consideration and it is something that the Buddha said over and over again don't believe anything 
Don't believe anything anybody tells you, including me. Try it out. That's the only way one has a spiritual path. The Buddha just gave guidelines, that's all. And also, on this path, using these guidelines, everybody has their own individual way of dealing with those guidelines. On that whole pathway which I have tried to describe to you, some people will do far more work on one of the stages and less work on another because that particular stage needs more work. They have to get into it with more emphasis. It's entirely our background which has um, great um, influence there and also our character. If we've had a lot of mess in our character in this life, we need a lot of purification. But some people haven't done a lot of silly things in this life. They've got to get on to the mind. The reaction, the, the wholesome and unwholesome thinking. Maybe they haven't got that either, then they've got to get on to view. Some people are able to get calm before gaining insight. Some have to gain insight before getting calm. It doesn't matter. The guidelines are for everyone, but one has to have enough discrimination and a little bit of wisdom to realize which one I have to really put emphasis on. And having then realized that stage, go on to the next one. And also how to do it within the confinements and um, within the daily activities that one has. There is a certain um, border put around all this. We can't just go on and do everything we want right away. We have duties, responsibilities. So we have to also adapt our practice that way, but not let it go to always keep in mind what this practice is all about and if we keep that in mind we can't fail but not to believe and only to do enough said <laughs> so you could ask if you like you can ask some questions Yes. The Janic states make life easy. As I have explained before, because we get something that's based on inner concentration and not on outer conditions, we realize right from the start that out there hasn't got anything to compare. It's incomparable. So we're already that step ahead. 
Second thing is that the mind has learned to concentrate. It can be one-pointed. And the higher jhanas, number five, six, and seven, provide a personal experience of the loss of individuality. And having had that, which of course comes back when one comes out of it, and having had that, one no longer hankers after individuality. So it makes it easy. Well, it makes it a little easier. The jhanas make it easier to become a stream enterer because one has already the experience what it's like. But it doesn't, uh, what, are you, what are you looking for? A stepladder or what? That's it, yeah, that's it. That's, that's it. No, not for the stream entrance. It makes it much easier though. Uh, you don't have to have them, no. You have to have a, uh, the ability to come to a jhanic moment, otherwise you can't take the jump. But these, the uh, jhanas give one the, first of all, the way which is nice, pleasant, sukha. It makes it perfectly possible to recognize that this is much more desirable than anything the world has. But you can also get to that stage of stream entry if you have understood the whole of the teaching and are able to have jhanic concentration. Yes. I wouldn't know. I don't know what you're saying. Sorry? Everything. Everything needs to be absent. A whole lot. Everything has to be absent. Has to be a total still point. Nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. That's why you need to have the quality of the jhanic concentration. Okay, anything else? Yes, fine. Is overlaid 
I don't think that this is a valuable contemplation. I think what is far more important is to contemplate what are the defilements and are they a bother to me and if they are how can I get rid of them the Buddha never never um, gave any instructions to check up on this hiriotapa on this shame and fear but he gave instructions miles long and to checking up on our hindrances which are our defilements um, and to try to not well eliminate them but to at least um, see how we can reduce them now you see the thing is what you're saying is quite true but everything is overlaid with our defilements everything is overlaid with wrong view because we all think this is me meditating so what else are we to do we've got to live and work with that particular wrong view which makes the defilements arise so while we're doing that all we can do is work start at that point we're at and try to work against the defilements but he never gave any instructions on checking up on um, conscience other than when we look at our precepts which we'll do tonight and see whether these are valuable uh, instructions to keep whether they do agree with our conscience that's the only time he ever talked about that he didn't use the word conscience but I think that shame could be used in that way because see the word conscience again comes into consciousness and as it comes into consciousness it's being used all over the place the word consciousness constantly used so the word conscience I have no, no knowledge I may be missing something but I have no knowledge that the Buddha actually used it I wouldn't know the Pali word for it I don't know so I think what we need to do is look at our defilements and try to see what they're doing to us and see that they are you know a nuisance put it mildly does that answer the question? What else? And sometimes the whole Buddha the whole part reminds me of the doctor who lays up on the operating table and operates on himself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is like that. It is like that. It is a, uh, and it is a do-it-yourself job, and it is definitely that um, complete change, you know, that we have to make. Luckily, we don't have to change our body. We only need to change our mind. <laughs> Yes. 
Well, one isn't quite sure, yes. Sleeping is karma from being a Buddha. What's that supposed to mean? No, I think I have just explained that a person who becomes fully enlightened cannot be, cannot return in another birth because there's nobody there to return. Why shouldn't he die of food poisoning? Why why was Jesus uh, crucified and died? I mean, all sorts of ideas, huh? So why shouldn't he die of food poisoning? What speaks against it? Actually, the story does say that he accepted the food knowing that it was like that. But what possible difference could that make to your practice? <laughs> Whether he died of food poisoning or God knows what else. <laughs> yes. Sorry? That's one of the questions which is going to be answered in the fourth mode. There are four modes of answering questions. The fourth mode is no answer. <laughs> Yes. Is one pointedness with stream entry? No, it's not. I think you need to attend the course. All that has been mentioned. Yes. Anything else? Yes. Uh, the word Bodhisattva in the Theravadan tradition is used for the Buddha aiming for enlightenment but we also use it as a term for anyone who's aiming for enlightenment bodhi is enlightenment and sattva is purity so um, maybe you've heard of sattvic sattvic is a type of word used very much in Hinduism so it's a person that is aiming for enlightenment Oh yes, if a bodhisattva doesn't become enlightened, comes back and teaches us. According to the Theravadan tradition, and I have mentioned already that it's useless to argue about it. Other traditions have other ideas about that. But a bodhisattva certainly, a bodhisattva is a person who's aiming for enlightenment, has already gained understanding and um, quite a high degree of um, a purity and not always but often teachers yes not always it doesn't follow I mean bodhisattva doesn't mean teacher sorry yes yes I know yes I know they've, they've got different ideas about that but it's, uh, no it doesn't really let's be our hands and then we'll know huh? <laughs> 
Sorry, is it? That every... Well, if you have achieved some insight, then some calm arises. And then another insight, and then another calm, they sort of uh, move with each other. But some people just can't get any calm at all until they've got a fair bit of insight. And then after having got a fair bit of insight, then it's all of a sudden much easier, much easier to gain calm. And there are those people who just fall into calm right from the start. And then they've got to work on a bit of insight. You see, the, the second kind that gets the calm first have it easier. Because uh, unless they have no instructions, if they have no instructions, they might not have it so easy. But if they have instructions, they already have a mind which is very solidified. And so gaining insight isn't so difficult. But most people aren't like that. Most people need a bit of insight to get a bit of calm and then a bit of calm to get a bit of insight. Most people are like that. There are a few lucky ones. Well, I might say calm is the present or whatever. Mm. Um, yes, 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 that's something very strong of course that's a strong one but also because we have strong ego remember you've got to drown the ego in order to become concentrated the stronger the ego the more difficult it is to become concentrated no 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 the ego keeps on arising wanting to be supported and it can't get supported when it's concentrated it has very small support. It has only the observing support, and that's very little. I think, therefore I am. That's where this comes from. That's where this philosophy from, of Descartes comes from. Because the, the thinking supports the I am idea. So the, the, that's why we have difficulty getting concentrated, because of the I am. I think, therefore I am. Yes, faith helps. Yes, certainly. Uh, smaller egos. <laughs> well, I mean, haven't you met people who seem to be extremely egocentric? And if things don't go their own way, they get quite irate and angry and upset and very nasty. And others, well, they'll go along with you. Okay, it's okay. You know. And others are even trying to help you. Service. That's sort of a gradation of ego. Right. Right. Yes. Not necessarily. Yes. Certainly. Certainly. But to get rid of it, in practically all cases, you have to practice. There are instances of people having a spontaneous like enlightenment in India, for instance, but hardly likely with us. <laughs> I think we've got to do something about it. <laughs> yes. 
I can't talk about the relationship between the ego and the subconscious. I know absolutely nothing about the subconscious. I leave that to Jung and those people. The Buddha didn't talk about it. He said, we had so much trouble with the conscious, let's get rid of that and then we'll, we'll know what's going on. You know, our conscious reactions are problem enough. The subconscious leads us into realms of uh, psychology and psychotherapy and psychiatry. Let's stay away from it as much as we can. It's a labyrinth. The conscious is already a labyrinth enough. And Buddha didn't speak about it. Yes. When you say block, uh, can you describe the block? what you're saying um, alright when the mind doesn't want to concentrate and you have aware of aches and pains and uh, the mind just throws up uh, silly thoughts huh? okay at that time the thing to do is to direct the mind towards some worthwhile thought again and again push it into a worthwhile thought and the mind will get interested one of the insights meditation subjects you know like taking your body apart into bits and pieces seeing the impermanence of all that's going on in the body bloodstream heart whatever all the rest of it um, seeing the um, uh, touch contact how there is a, a feeling from that because of the aches and pains huh? um, how it works so many different ideas that I have given for inside meditation um, the one that the mind really says, aha, now I'm interested, now I'll try and follow that. And that will be helpful. Then when the mind again starts playing games, well, just smile at it and say, oh, well, yes, playing games, come on, do something sensible again. The concentration is geared towards calm. That kind of inquiry is geared towards insights, just as valuable. The only thing that's not valuable is to let the mind play games. And it's always ready to do that. Always likes to play games because we haven't matured. We are actually children. That's what the Buddha said about us anyway. Yes? Against your instinct, impulses, habits, and going along with what society does. Was that clear, Kenneth? Yes. Uh, see, there are also those times when uh, one is not very clear 